So, uh, if you have your copy of scriptures, you can turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. Um, John 17 is where we will be camping out this morning. And I'm going to focus specifically on John 17 and verse 24, uh, but to get a little bit more of the context, I'll read 24 through 26. Uh, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that this is John's. Uh, this is uh, John recording Jesus's high priestly prayers. It's sometimes called all of chapter 17 is Jesus's prayer for his disciples. And so John 17, uh, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Probably should have mentioned I was reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, the LSB. Um, my wife was very concerned that uh, if I mentioned the LSB, you not think that it's somehow affiliated with the Mormon church, the LDS church. I don't know why she thought that, but she says it just sounds Mormon. Um, it's not. Uh, it is a newer, updated, really, version of the New American Standard Bible, 1995. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord God Almighty, we ask for your help as we seek to understand and apply your word to our hearts and lives. Lord, we thank you for this rich prayer that you chose to record uh, so that we would be able to hear and listen in on Jesus' prayer for us. So, Lord, may we receive the food of your word even now. In Jesus' name. Steve Lawson, in his book, Heaven Help Us, he tells the story of a man by the name of Sir William Montague Dyke, who at the age of 10 years old lost his eyesight. And he was able to deal with his disability for many years in, in quite a tremendous way where he was able to graduate from college in England and uh, even become somewhat successful. And uh, he was engaged to be married. And in the context of his engagement, uh, he became aware of a very risky surgery that could either leave him continually permanently blind for the rest of his life or may actually cure his blindness. And he decided that uh, he would have this surgery during his engagement period. And on the day of his wedding, he would have the bandages taken off of his eyes so that the very first thing he would see would be his bride. Well, you can imagine the kind of uh, drama of the wedding 
uh, as the pomp and circumstance of this wedding, which uh, evidently Sir, w Sir William Montague Dyke was uh, uh, somehow connected with royalty, and, and his bride comes down the aisle, and they take the bandages off of his eyes, and sure enough, he is able to see. And the words that he uttered echoed through that large church building when he said, she's more beautiful than I ever imagined. Makes one think of what it will be like when we first gaze upon the living Christ when we enter into glory. That we will see him as he is. And he will be more beautiful than we had ever imagined. Well, what's fascinating about this prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples is that he prays for that moment. He prays that his disciples, those whom the Father had given him, would be with him where he is, that they would see his glory. It's quite a prayer that Jesus prays. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, I'll just refresh your memory. If you're not, let me, let me frame a little bit of context. John wrote the Gospel of John to present Jesus to his audience. And he writes in John 20, 31, that he has written these things so that uh, they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. And so, uh, really, the Gospel of John, it's, it's all about Jesus. Now, I know that sounds very simplistic, but, uh, but whenever you're reading the Gospels, you're never far from the interpretive truth of the passage if you ask the question, what does this tell me about Jesus? Because that's why the authors of the Gospel wrote. They weren't writing merely biographies. They weren't merely recording history, although it's very true that the Gospels are historical accounts, but they're presenting Jesus to us in his glory. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God and God's infinite wisdom, wanted us to be able to listen in to Jesus's prayer for his disciples on the evening before his execution. I mean, that's amazing, right? He wants us to hear what Jesus prays, so that in our hearing, we would feel something of the heartbeat of Jesus for his people, that we would know something of his passion that he wants for his people. And this passion is indeed glorious. And, and I want us to look at specifically verse 24 of chapter 17, which is just getting a little snippet, a little glimpse of the prayer of Jesus to hear his heart, and what we're going to learn from this is three profound truths that would give you joyful anticipation of eternal glory. Three, three realities, three important truths that you would have joyful anticipation of eternal glory. The first is what I'm calling the passion of Jesus. Notice it's laying right there for us to see in verse 24 father jesus talking to the father he prays to the father i desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where i am that they may see 
my glory with which you have given me. Jesus here, in the presence of his disciples, recorded by the, God, by the Apostle John, declares to the Father, I desire that they would be with me. Now, it seems kind of odd, right? Because uh, Jesus was with them as he prays this prayer. I mean, you know, and a, uh, a kind of naive onlooker may say, well, Jesus, that's a strange thing to pray because they're with you right now. But you see, Jesus' prayer, while it is for those initial 11 apostles, 11 disciples that were remaining, Judas had gone out, it's ultimately for all of God's people. And one of the ways in which we know that is because verse 20 of this prayer, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those whom those also who believe in me through their word. So that Jesus' prayer is not merely for those immediate 11 disciples, but it's for every single person who would ever believe. It's a prayer. It's a, it's a passion that Jesus, that, that Jesus' disciples would be with him. Now, this section of the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17, it's sometimes called the upper room discourse. And the reason for that is because the entire um, section is really Jesus' teachings and it climaxes with his prayer that takes place in that upper room on the evening before Jesus' execution. And the beginning of this upper room discourse really, in a sense, it begins in a similar way that it ends. The beginning you may be familiar with, but may not have thought of it in this context. And in John chapter 14, if you just turn there real quickly, Jesus pray, or Jesus teaches his disciples as they are afraid, as he tells them he's, he's going to leave them, he's going to die. And 14.1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus comforts his disciples on the evening of his execution by telling them, that he is going to come back for them and they're going to be with him and they're going to be together for all eternity. And so it's no wonder that this teaching of 13 through 17 climaxes with Jesus again reiterating this, but Jesus in the context of prayer expressing this desire to the Father. Now, often when we pray, we, we sometimes just kind of express our desires to God. And we're just creatures of dust, and so our desires, in dare I say even our prayers, may not carry the kind of uh, weight that Jesus' prayers carry with the Father. Uh, for instance, when my children, you know, sometimes my children will say things like, I want candy. 
and they're expressing their desire. And in a sense, it's an implied request. But the reality is, is and sometimes I have to remind them of this, is that it, it really doesn't matter what you want. It matters what I decide is good for you. And if I think candy is good and appropriate now, then I will give it. If not, then you sit there and don't have candy. But Jesus, as the eternal Son of the Father, who in space and time clothed himself in humanity, has this eternal relationship with the Father, and his expression of this desire, in a very real sense, is a a kind of mediatorial expression that those whom the Father had given him would be with him. And it's an expression that will be effective in the Father answering that prayer. Uh, Richard Phillips in his commentary on the Gospel of John says this, seeing the believer's assurance in the priestly ministry of Christ, we see the necessity of belonging to Jesus if we desire to be saved. Who else but Jesus has the legal right to declare his saving will in the presence of God the Father? Who else has the standing that Jesus possesses as the holy beloved, perfectly obedient and righteous son, armed with the covenantal authority to save God's elect? So this is uh, Jesus' expression of his desire, but it implies a prayer, a prayer that will be effectively answered by the Father. And this wonderfully teaches us that Jesus wants you at his table. His table in eternity. Sometimes, usually in the summertime, is when families will plan family reunions. Some of you may dread those family reunions. Some of you may think with more delight. I know God has blessed me with a wonderful family. And, you know, when we have family get-togethers, it's, it's, it's exciting to get together as a family. Well, Jesus prays for a family reunion in heaven. Jesus prays his desire for you to be with him. One story in the Old Testament, I think, wonderfully illustrates this truth. You remember King David in the Old Testament? He spent a good chunk of his life having been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel, but he was kind of waiting in the wings, and as he was waiting, he was being hunted down like a flea in the mountains by King Saul. And eventually David makes it to the throne in Israel, and he's coronated as king. And normally in the ancient Near Eastern world, when you became king, you annihilated any potential opposition to the throne, which meant 
taking the family of the predecessor and wiping them out. Not merely sicking the FBI on your political opponent, as we see in our day, but actually murdering any potential political opposition to the throne. And so it would have been very normal in the ancient Near Eastern world for David to order the execution of everybody in Saul's family. But you remember, David had become friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he had entered into a kind of covenant with Jonathan. And so when David ascends to the throne, he asks his advisors around him, is there any buddy still in the household of Saul that I can show kindness to? And you remember that fellow by the name of, what's an interesting name, Mephibosheth. Repeat that three times over if you can. Mephibosheth. And you remember the story of Mephibosheth that when he was just a young boy, there was a, an invading army and his nurse picked him up and they were running and, and she dropped him in the course of their evacuation and he had become a cripple his entire life. We don't know the extent of his disabilities, but, but you have to understand, if you had a disability in the ancient world, you couldn't do much. You know, they didn't have things like wheelchairs and walkers and, you know, different, uh, you know, American Disabilities Act to help people out with disabilities. They were often ostracized from the community an embarrassment to the family. And so David is, he summons Mephibosheth to come to the palace. Now, can you imagine being Mephibosheth and getting that summons thinking, this can't be good, right? You know, David, again, this is the, you know, Mephibosheth would have been considered a kind of a threat to the throne of David. And so you can imagine a giant lump in Mephibosheth's throat. He is by nature a rebel to the kingdom. He is by nature helpless and weak. And yet you know the rest of the story. Because David invites him to the palace to sit at the king's table. An honor. An act of kindness. And what a wonderful picture for us who are by nature rebels to the throne. Competitors to the throne of King Jesus. There's this wonderful sermon by Jonathan Edwards. I can't remember the name of the sermon in which he talks about that if God vacated his throne, but for one second, there would be a sprint to the throne where humanity would try to take over the throne of deity. And the very first act that humanity would commit would be deicide, would be to murder God. I mean, that's what we are by nature. 
We are born into this world worshiping almighty me, myself, and I. And yet, wonder of wonders, the king, the son of David, invites us to the table, reconciles us to himself in our helplessness, weakness, disability, and rebellion. You are invited to the king's table. What an amazing God we have. The Southern Presbyterian Benjamin Morgan Palmer says this, when you see the high priest coming up from the altar and standing before the throne in the very midst of the throne saying to his father, Father, I will that they be with me. Are we not safe? Let the devil howl. Let him come with his retinue from the depths of hell and rage and rave all over this earth. Let the world enter into fatal conspiracy with the powers of darkness and rage around us. And in the midst of all this peril, in the power of intercession, in the royalty, and in the grace of our ascending head, we are safe because Jesus says, I will that they be with me. You are safe because Jesus prays for you. His passion for you. And let me press this home to our hearts. For those of you who may be in the throes of grief, who have lost loved ones who died in the Lord, perhaps a husband, a wife, a child, some of the greatest pain that humanity can experience on planet Earth. If they died in the Lord, then they, what was your loss, has become Christ's gain. That this was the answer to his prayer, that they would be with him. It was the fulfillment of his passion that they made it to glory. And they are with him and will be with him forever and ever in a world of joy and happiness. And so that in the midst of your heartache, you can know that what has been your loss, and it is real loss, and it is real pain, is the gain of our Savior, is the delight of our Savior. So that you, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you can grieve with hope. But also, for those of us who will one day be in the throes of death, which, as C.S. Lewis said, one out of one persons die, and the numbers cannot be improved upon. That when you are in the midst of the throes of dying, as your body, your outer man is failing, as your heart is not pumping as it ought to, as the cancer is overtaking your 
body so that you are on the brink of death. And you scan your whole life and you you, you realize the, the foolish decisions that you have made and, and the regrets and all of that. And you're wondering, will Jesus welcome me into eternity? Does He want me to be with Him? I tell you on the authority of God's Word, God has let you listen to Jesus' prayer so that you can hear His voice say, I want her to be with me. I want him to be with me where I am that he or she may see my glory. And you can know that the Savior wants you. He wants you to be with him. He will welcome you if you die in Jesus. As William Cooper, the hymn writer, wrote, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. That's the passion of Jesus. It should give you joyful anticipation of eternal glory. The secondly is the plan of the Father. Notice verse 24, who is the object of Jesus' desire? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Notice how Jesus identifies the object of his desire to be with him. He identifies them. He could have said, Father, I desire Christians to be with me where I am. Uh, Father, I desire those who believe in me to be with me me where I am. But that he doesn't say that. That's not how he identifies them. He identifies them as those whom you have given me. That's an interesting phrase. But it's a phrase that's repeated all throughout the Gospel of John in a wonderful kind of way. In fact, we could trace the repetition of this throughout this section. Uh, just one verse in John 17, 9. Earlier on in this prayer, I ask or I pray on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I mean, that's a shocking verse in and of itself, right? You mean Jesus doesn't pray for everybody? No, that, that's what the passage said. He doesn't pray for everybody. He prays for these given ones. We... Find this phrase earlier on in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6 and verse 37 through 39, where Jesus says, all, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him, him who sent me. Well, Jesus, what is the will of him who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So these given ones who are mentioned over and over throughout the Gospel of John are essentially John's term for the elect of God. The Apostle Paul uses the language in, in a similar language but using the term elect or chosen in Ephesians 1 when he says, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace and so what this teaches us here is that these given ones they're given as a love gift from the father to the son in eternity past for the son to lay down his life for and so that in space and time the holy spirit would apply that salvation to their hearts theologians call this the pactum salutum theologians like to use fancy latin phrases and pastors like to repeat those phrases and act like they know latin which we don't my 12 year old knows more latin than i will ever know but it just means that the pact of salvation the salvation covenant an agreement between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past to save a people for himself. This is amazing. This highlights that this mission of Jesus did not begin 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was written. This mission of Jesus did not even start way back in Genesis 3, thousands of years ago, when Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. This mission of Jesus started in eternity past. It's the plan of the Father. What an amazing thought. And so that this desire, this will that Jesus expresses is that all these given ones would be with him where he's at. Now, you're sitting there thinking, maybe thinking, if you're a good Bible student, you may be thinking of, of, of some other verses in the Scripture that, that seem to suggest that, that Jesus or that God has a desire that every single person without exception be, be saved. For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that, that God desires all men to be saved now i do think if you looked at that verse within that context you would see that he's talking about all kinds of people as he just told timothy to make sure prayers are being prayed for governors kings and people from from all different uh, people groups but but i i don't have a problem thinking through the reality that god and jesus have some kind of desire for humanity, even those who are not elect to be saved. But but we must clearly distinguish it must not be this kind of desire because this kind of desire that Jesus expresses is effective. It's part of his high priestly ministry of intercession because if Jesus' desire for you to be with him where he is is the same desire that he had for Judas or for Pharaoh or for Hitler, well, that doesn't really bring a whole lot of comfort because that desire didn't ultimately do much for those who die outside the Lord and are in hell right now. But this desire, it's specific for those given ones. And it is effective. It is heard by the father and the father makes sure that all of those given ones get to jesus charles ross in his commentary on john says but in 
What respect were this people given by the Father to the Son? In the first instance, He gave them in the everlasting covenant when from all eternity He saw them lying in their guiltiness and sins, ready to perish forever. He gave them to His Son to be... uh, He gave them to his son to by him in time be redeemed, renewed, and brought home to glory. Ah, justly might he have left them to perish forever in their sins as he did the angels that fell without any reflection on his justice and without any disparagement of that goodness which he had created them to be so holy and happy and which placed them in circumstances favorable for securing and perpetuating that happiness but no to permit the whole human race to perish when their covenant head had transgressed did not seem good to him whose name is love. And so, friend, this reality, this plan of the Father should give you joyful anticipation. It should give you comfort amidst the reality that so often we are very wavering in our Christian lives. Some days we're excited about Jesus. Some days we yawn about Jesus. But your eternity is not based upon your emotional state today. Your eternity hangs upon an eternal covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A promise in which they will be faithful to you. That all these given ones, as Jesus said in John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. All that the Father has given me, I will raise up on the last day. Every single one who's been given by the Father to Jesus will get to Jesus and will ultimately persevere in the faith and will ultimately be with Jesus where he's at. This also should humble any and every believer. Because the difference between you sitting here this morning wanting to follow Jesus, loving Jesus, and your neighbor who's pagan is not because you're a lot smarter than them. Even though you might be. It's because the grace of God. It's because in the wonder of God's grace, He set His love upon you. None of us deserve His love. None of us deserve His grace. But He brought you into the eternal plan, and that guarantees you a place at the table. But you may be sitting here this morning thinking, wow, this is, this is really deep theology, Matt. How do I know I'm one of those given ones? I mean, you're saying that, that, that ultimately it's, it's, it's God Himself who saves and 
How, how could I possibly know that I'm one of those given ones? Well, if we were to go back to John 6 and verse 40 in that same context where Jesus talks about these given ones, he says in 640, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You look to Jesus. The look of faith. Jesus says in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. You have been bitten by the snake of sin. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. The sentence of eternal damnation is over your head. And yet this Jesus died on the cross. If you look to Him in faith, you turn to Him just like those rebellious Hebrews in the desert in their ungratefulness and grumbling and complaining were told if you look to that bronze serpent you'll be healed look to Jesus this morning don't look to yourself don't try to find solutions in yourself don't look to pop culture don't look to the latest fads or the latest self-help books look to Jesus see him in agony on the cross, dying for sinners. See Him bearing in His body the full throttle of the Father's punishment on behalf of sinners. And see Him with open hands inviting you to come to Him. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And then guess what? Then you'll know, I'm given. I was given by the Father to the Son from eternity past. So, first truth, important truth for your joyful anticipation of eternal glory is the passion of Jesus. He desires that you be with him where he is. Secondly, the plan of the Father. The object of this desire is those who are given. Third, is the pleasure of the people. The pleasure of his people. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice the end game of Jesus' prayer, not that we would just merely be in heaven, but that we would see Jesus. The older writers would often call this the beatific vision. It sounds very fancy. It's just the blessed vision, the happy vision, the, the happy sight of God in eternal glory. He prays this. He prays that we would see His glory. What is His glory? Well, well, again, we've kind of come full circle in the Gospel of John because remember how John opens up. Jesus is the, the one who reveals the Father and His glory. 
John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word, a word is an expression of a thought, an idea. Jesus is the expression of the Father. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, but, but, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. And then that classic verse in 114, the Word became flesh and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory so much in the Gospel of John is the manifestation of the character of God. And so Jesus is praying that his own, those given by the Father, would see him in all of his glory. Now, obviously, the disciples had seen something of Jesus' glory, had they not? But obviously, this prayer is that they would have 20-20 vision of glory. One of the sad realities in this fallen world is that we often don't see Jesus as we should see him. And it's not because... God's word is not adequate. But it's because the reality of our one, our own human weakness, we're frail creatures of dust. We all seem to have, especially in this digital world, some kind of attention deficit disorder. You know, we've got beeps and buzzes and vibrations going on. And, you know, this morning I had to, you know, put the do not disturb on my thing because... Somebody might show up at my front door and I'll be notified. And so there's all kinds of distractions, there's weakness, but then there's also the reality of our own sinfulness. Sin affects the way we think. And so we, we don't see Jesus as we ought to see him. Even as believers. But one day, we will see Him. Unhindered by sin, not overcoming the realities of, of, of weakness and being creatures. We'll still be creatures in eternity future, but, but perhaps the realities that affect us and our weaknesses living in a fallen world. But then notice here, and I love this, Jesus seems to kind of key in on one angle of his glory that will be seen. Notice at the end of verse 24, he says, For, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That Jesus in his prayer for us to see him in his glory seems to zero in on this specific attribute of the love of God. And, and dare I say, a kind of inter-Trinitarian love of the Father's love for the Son. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see this great love that exists within the Trinity that we get to partake of because we are united to Jesus. One author says the glory and happiness of heaven to the elect will consist 
much in being in Christ's company, in whom they delight so much on earth to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, and to enjoy him fully without separation anymore. For so is heaven here described in Christ's prayer, that they may be with me where I am. It was Samuel Rutherford, the English Puritan, who said, O my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Jesus in his glory is the crown jewel of heaven. Is he the crown jewel of your heart here and now? Is he the chief object of your love? Then truly dying will be gain to you. But if he's not your chief love here and now, then dying will not be gain to you. I mean, that, that's the words of the Apostle Paul, right? And Philippians 1.19, to live as Christ and to die is gain. If you substitute Christ with anything else, then dying is not gain. If to live is work, then dying is not gain because you're not going to be doing that work in heaven. If to live is family, as good as that may be, to die is not gain because you have to say goodbye to your family. If to live is fame, dying is not gain because you will be forgotten not long after your death. But if to live is Christ, oh, dying will be gain. Charles Ross says, the beatific vision to which they shall attain when he has gathered them home to be forever with himself. And if the vision on the holy mount was so sweet, if the attractions of that moment were so ravishing that Peter said, it is good for us to be here, what shall we behold in countless unfoldings of his glory throughout all eternity? You see what, what Ross is communicating there is remember when, when, uh, when, when Peter, James, and John were on that mount of transfiguration, Peter's like, yay, we're going to, we're going to just stay here. We're going to build, uh, you know, tabernacles and tents. We're going to stay here. He didn't want to leave. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Now's not the time. How much more will all eternity be when we don't have to be exhorted by Jesus? And he says, now is not the time. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. You will finally be home. Jonathan Edwards is often criticized uh, or most known, popular, for preaching sermons on hell, right? But my favorite sermon of his is not about hell, it's about heaven. If you ever want to read an amazing book, you read his book, Charity and Its Fruits. And the last sermon is my favorite sermon, maybe of all time. It's called Heaven, a World of Love. 
heaven, a world of love. And there he zeroes in on the reality that love is that eternal thing. And love will be uh, such an amazing feature in heaven as we bask in the love of God for all eternity. Listen to what Edward says here. God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. There, even in heaven, dwells with God, uh, dwells with God from whom every stream of holy love, yes, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father from the Son and God the Spirit united as one in infinitely dear, incomprehensible love. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Love, who so loved the world that He shed His blood and poured out His soul unto death for men. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and there is breathed forth in love. And there in heaven, this glorious God is manifested, shines for us in full glory and beams of love. And there this glorious fountain of love forever flows forth and rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, into an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with sweet enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. Edwards is is, is zeroing in on the reality that all eternity will be an enjoyment of God's love. What an amazing thought. You are loved by God. He demonstrated that love in the cross. And you will get to enjoy that love for all eternity, forever and ever, world without end, as you see Jesus in his glory. We live in a cold, hard world. A world often with unrequited love. I mentioned six children, two of my children aged 10 and 12 years old, and they're kind of at that stage where friends are very important. And they often, you know, will buy gifts, make cards for their friends, and or, or friends they want to be friends with. It's not always reciprocated. And maybe something of your experience where you, you try to make friends and you try to reach out and love towards others and it, it's just not reciprocated. Never so with God. In fact, it's just the opposite. We never reciprocate His love as we ought to. Every good thing you've ever enjoyed has been a gift from His hand. Where would you be this morning without his love? What gutter of sin would you be wallowing in? What miseries, what hope would you have? But he set his love upon you, brought you into his family, died on the cross for you, and he prays for you that you would be with him where he is forever. For The Father loved him before the foundation of the world. From all eternity, this love has existed and he wants you to enter into that eternal forever love. 
And so, friend, if you see in your heart this morning a lack of love for Jesus, confess it to him. He knows about it already. There's no point in hiding it. Tell him, my Jesus, my heart is cold. I don't love you as I ought to, but I want to love you. And ask him to fill your heart with a greater love for him. As you know, this isn't the only prayer that Jesus prays on this evening before his execution. And what's fascinating is if you think through the gospel accounts and juxtapose this prayer of Jesus with another prayer of Jesus, the prayer in Gethsemane that evidently would happen several hours later. Because in that prayer in Gethsemane, the Father reveals to Jesus something of the agonies and horrors that he would experience on the cross. It's so much that it's likened to a cup. It's likened to a cup where Jesus would have to drink full the cup of the Father's wrath as he endured the agonies of the cross. In other words, Jesus was coming under the realization and understanding and knowledge that he was going to bear in his body somehow mysteriously all the full throttle of hell that every sinner who would ever believe deserved for all eternity, that he was going to bear that in his body for those three hours upon the cross. And as he is revealed that reality, he shrieks back in horror. And he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if there's any other way for those given to me by you to make it to eternal glory and I not have to endure this. If there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But if you were to ask yourself, why was Jesus willing to take that cup? Certainly one of the reasons is found in John 17. His desire, his will for those who have been given to him by the Father to be with him where he is for all eternity and glory was greater than his desire to avoid the pain and the horrors of hell on the cross. In other words, he chose to subject himself to the will of the Father because he willed that you would be with him for all eternity. What an amazing Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, sometimes we just have to confess the greatest thing in the world to be a Christian. To be one of these given ones 
to be one of these blood-bought people, to be the recipient of this prayer, to have the hope of eternal life that's rooted in the eternal triune Godhead, to know that you want us to be with you. Oh, Lord, we are not worthy of this, but we lay hold of it by faith. Lord, we say with that man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.